Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. The Republican Party has also retained control of the Senate, giving the President Trump a fully Republican Congress. This has been a truly historic night, and not in the way a lot of people predicted. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. We're in the booth right now at 3.20 a.m., and we, like a lot of folks, are saying, how did this happen? Um, it surprised just about every pollster and every journalist. What happened, Ron? The professionals were wrong. The professionals in the media, the professionals in the business of running campaigns, and the people who do polling for a living. Now, there were a couple of outliers out there, but there were literally scores and hundreds of polls done uh, nationally and also in the swing states, the battleground states, and they were almost perfectly uniformly wrong. This is not to say that there was a huge margin of support for Clinton, and it was a close campaign, a close race all along. But the pollsters and the pros, and I would go so far as to say even people within the Trump campaign were signaling today, yesterday, that they thought that the die had been cast and that their guy was going to lose. But Ron, I actually thought it wasn't as close at all in terms of what we saw in some of the polls. I was looking at the margin of victory in a state like Ohio. I believe it was around 9%. I had not seen a poll that showed that. That's what I'm saying is that the polls showed it to be close. Yeah. But uh, but usually, if there was a result in a swing state, it was trending a little bit towards Clinton. Now, that was true in the late polls in North Carolina and Florida, both of which Trump won. Ohio and Iowa were two states that had gone for Obama, but where Hillary Clinton just didn't seem to be getting over the top, even on Monday, even in the polls. So there was no real surprise except perhaps in the margin in terms of Ohio and no real surprise in terms of Iowa. The real surprise came in the states of the, quote, blue wall, Mm -hmm. which supposedly the Democrats couldn't lose because they'd been carrying them since 1992. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, perhaps Minnesota, which I don't believe has been called yet. That goes back all the way to uh, uh, 1972, I believe. I mean, Ron, you're a Midwesterner, though, and I would say this growing up in Indiana, there was always this assumption that that the Midwest was kind of this speckled state. Even, I mean, Pennsylvania that way, too, where, you, you know, you'd see dots of red and dots of blue. I looked at the map tonight and what amazed me was that you saw Illinois, that one isolated blue speck in the middle of the country. And Illinois is still blue because Chicago has a very large minority population of African-Americans and Hispanics. Wisconsin doesn't have anywhere near that number. Minnesota doesn't have anywhere near that number. Michigan with Detroit has more people of color, but They don't seem to have turned out in sufficient numbers, as they didn't turn out in sufficient numbers in Milwaukee County, to put Hillary Clinton over the top in a state that is mostly white. So my question, you know, seeing how much pollsters got this wrong, was it an issue of pollsters not talking to the right people, not finding these white voters that showed up for Trump, or were people telling pollsters one thing and then voting a different way? Well, I can tell you that in our coverage tonight, we had on Sean Trende, who's a, an analyst for the Real Killer Politics, who's written extensively about what has been referred to as the missing white vote. And this was always part of Trump's gamble, that his argument was that there was millions of disaffected white voters in this country that just needed a candidate who spoke for them. There are as many as 47 million of those voters in this country who could have voted in 2012 and did not. And that was that was the group of people 
people he ran a campaign most directly focused at. And that paid off. And I think in this in this evening or yesterday, <laughs> timing's a little, a little difficult for us these days. But uh, when North Carolina was called for Donald Trump, that was an early indication that that strategy was paying off. North Carolina is one of the states with a significant amount of that missing white vote that wasn't necessarily accounted for in the mix of people pollsters in North Carolina were anticipating were going to show up. I think his victories in Ohio and in Pennsylvania are further proof that Trump made a smart bet and one that, as Ron said, the the professional class, the pundits, the press, even the the political consultants thought was risky. I mean, if you remember um, Stuart Stevens, who was Mitt Romney's campaign manager, who's been a very lively and critical presence of Trump this entire campaign cycle, has mocked him at every move, saying that this strategy could never work. And he was proved wrong tonight. And I was going to say, and if you look at states like Michigan and Wisconsin, what I was blown away with, these are both states where President Obama actually won blue-collar whites in 2008. These are states where now the exit polls show that Donald Trump won by 31 percentage points. Yeah. I mean, that's just a rapid In, rapid in that change. category. In that yep. category, look at Macomb County, just outside of Detroit, uh, the home of the Reagan Democrats back in the 1980s. It actually voted for Barack Obama in 2012. Actually, he got a majority in Macomb County, which is a heavily white, blue-collar kind of county. And uh, boy, did Donald Trump blow that up tonight. Donald Trump totally dominated the vote in Macomb County. And over in Oakland County, which is a little bit more of an upscale, more affluent, more educated white county... Hillary Clinton couldn't make up the difference. What does it say that just eight years ago, America elected its first black president, um, and now we see a candidate who in so many ways is the exact opposite? Well, you know, this is going to be the conversation we're going to have in the days and weeks ahead. But it is one of my initial thoughts is that this is a country in whiplash. You know, President Obama ushered in a sweeping Democratic wave in 2008 that swept control of Congress, gave him a supermajority in the Senate. And this idea of the permanent Democrat majority seemed at hand. I also think we need to put a finer point tonight on how big of tonight's victories were for the Republican Party. Republicans now control the White House, both chambers of Congress, a majority of the state houses. Kentucky flipped their state house tonight. It's the first time Republicans have held the chamber since 1920. It is the last chamber. It was the last chamber in the South held by Democrats. The entire southern state houses are now controlled by Republicans. Uh, and the next president will nominate at least one and maybe three Supreme Court yeah. justices. I mean, tonight was an absolute absolute 180 reaction to the 2008 election. We have already seen the global markets begin to react to this news. As soon as the race began to tighten earlier last night, um, markets throughout the world were moving very sharply. How should we expect the world to take this news in the next few days? Or do we know? We know that a lot of people in the world, this from polling again, and of course we continue to rely on what data points we have. Uh, We know from polling, we know from the statements of foreign leaders, we know from the foreign markets that many people have problems with Donald Trump because they have heard his America first rhetoric. They have heard his anti-trade rhetoric. He says he's not anti-trade. He says he's for deals that will help America. And that means deals that would not be so favorable to other countries that have benefited from trade with the United States. So it's not too surprising that between the uncertainty of what a Donald Trump presidency would be and the certainty that he might at least take seriously some of the things he said he would do, most of these other countries are 
regarding him with a certain amount of apprehension. And we have a model for this. It was called Brexit, right, in terms of how the world markets reacted to a world superpower doing something unexpected. And there was an immediate and initial rattling of the markets, but they essentially recovered. And the thing that I always think it's important to remember about markets and politics is markets like stability. And Donald Trump was the the change candidate. So it's not surprising to me that we would see an initial reaction in the markets. It's more uh, important what he then does with his power and with Republicans in Congress. And so you mentioned Brexit. One of the interesting demographic takeaways to me tonight is that when we look at voters under the age of around 40, 45, we saw that a majority of them supported Secretary Clinton. Uh, voters over, you know, 45 uh, went for Donald Trump. And that is very akin to what we saw in Brexit, where older voters supported the idea of leaving the European yeah. Union. One of the one of the things that we expected to see in this election was a desertion of the Republican Party by white college graduates. Now, if you look at the college graduate category as a whole, you'll see that Hillary Clinton carried it narrowly. But that includes college graduates who are African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and so forth. If you look just at the white college graduates, and this was the group that supposedly was going to defect from the Republican Party of Donald Trump, he got their votes 49% to 45%. And among men in particular, white college graduate men, he got a clear majority, 54%. This is in some defiance of the polls and will encourage those people who think that some respondents to the pollsters were kind of fibbing a little bit about what they thought about Donald Trump. So Hillary Clinton did not speak tonight. Around 2 a.m., her campaign manager, John Podesta, addressed what seemed to be a pretty depressed crowd at the Javits Convention Center in New York. He told the folks there that Clinton would not speak. Several states are too close to call, so we're not going to have anything more to say tonight. So listen. Listen to me. Everybody should uh, head home. You should get some sleep. We'll have more to say tomorrow. I want you to know, I want every person in this hall to know, and I want every person across the country who supported Hillary to know, that your voices and your enthusiasm mean so much to her and to Tim and to all of us. We are so proud of you. So he was saying the race was too close to call, but still telling folks to go on home. Then around 2.45 a.m., we hear reports that Clinton had called Trump to concede. And then around 3 a.m., Donald Trump spoke at his victory party at the Hilton Hotel in Manhattan. We'll play this. It's about two minutes long. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard-fought campaign. I mean, she, she fought very hard. Hillary has worked very long and very hard over a long period of time, and we owe her a major debt of gratitude for her service to our country. I mean that very sincerely. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division. Have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us 
to come together as one united people. It's time. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be President for all Americans, and this is so important to me. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. He also said that, quote, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. He pledged to rebuild our inner cities and infrastructure, put millions of people to work. He pledged to seek common ground, not hostility, with other nations around the world. This is a kind of Trump that we did not see and hear all the time on the campaign trail. What are we to make of this and what he said? Was this the pivot? Finally, the, the pivot. But 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 look, this is this is encouraging because obviously nobody really wants Donald Trump to try to be president in the same manner in which he ran for president by being angry and speaking to a group of people who were themselves angry and trying to turn that into a dynamic that would actually make him the president. But I think some folks do want that, right? Yes, but in the end, they'll be willing to accept their champion, Donald Trump acting in this manner and opening his arms in this much more welcoming kind of gesture. Let's let's put our arms around the whole country. Not the sort of thing that we're used to seeing from Donald Trump, but the sort of thing that will serve him in good stead. And I would say that the people who voted for him, the people who voted for him in this election, would be more than glad to see him make that pivot within certain limitations. But here's the thing. You know, he says that he wants to bring the country together. A lot of folks and a lot of various communities have not forgotten things he said about their communities. He said things about Latinos and Muslims and black people in hells. And like, how does he get those people to unite behind that, him? I don't know that he does get those people. I mean, I think that's a very real question as we move forward in the, in the sort of days uh, when he'll be inaugurated and thereafter is this question of, Really, is he able to garner their support? I mean, but look, at the end of the day, too, a lot of those folks live in urban centers. And I think one of the big divides we saw today was the urban-rural vote. I mean, you have folks who are living and sort of on the coast or in big cities, and those folks aren't necessarily on a day-to-day basis mingling with folks who supported Donald Trump. And you guys both hit on something, a very important part about this election. You know, half, almost half of this country is waking up Wednesday morning feeling like they lost something, that something was taken from them. And while Republicans had significant victories tonight, and then I think it is fair to call it a Republican wave or a wavelet because they didn't necessarily gain a ton, but they held their ground, that these are still much narrower majorities. President Donald Trump is going to have a narrower Senate, a narrower House. And as we look at the popular vote that's coming in tonight, he has not crossed a 50 percent threshold yet. It is unlikely that he will. We don't know that answer. So it's half of the people in this country that cast their ballots voted against him. And that's and, what I... Oh, go yeah. ahead. No, I was just saying, we, we are a very divided country. And that is why Donald Trump coming out tonight and striking that conciliatory tone really matters. It matters that presidents try to do that. Whether the people that voted against them are willing to listen, we don't know. And it depends what they're going to do. There's so many questions now that we all have. But his tone was important tonight. Speaking of questions, uh, there's going to be a lot of what-ifs playing out tomorrow. 
One of the biggest will be around Gary Johnson, the third-party candidate. Um, the totals that he got in some states, uh, had he not been there, could have been enough to switch some states. How will we look back on the Gary Johnson effect in this race? I think he was key uh, among millennial voters. You know, I was saying earlier that a lot of young voters supported Hillary Clinton, and, and they did. But if you look at it, she was not able, she underperformed Barack Obama. And a key part of that is that she did not seem to be, she wasn't really able to sort of galvanize all those younger voters who might have been supporting, say, Bernie Sanders during the primary season. And I think that was always the big question with her general election bid. If you look at how Donald Trump did, he kind of was on par with how Mitt Romney did, it seems like among these voters under the age of of 29. But it looks like Hillary Clinton did not perform as well as Barack Obama. And that was key in a state like Florida, because if you look at Florida in 2012, Barack Obama actually did better with younger voters than he did on average nationally. She couldn't seem to hold that. And that's important. Second, what if um, what would have happened if FBI director James Comey had not come forward with uh, the latest round of email revelations. That is an unknowable, but let's put it this way. One of two things might have happened. Either she would have been able to execute the kind of campaign she wanted to have in the last 10 days, where she wanted to become more positive, where she wanted to reach out to more people. She might have been able to do that, and it might have helped her generate the turnout she didn't get in this election. On the other hand, there was a certain amount of complacency around the Clinton campaign and the Democratic performance couple of weeks ago when she looked like she was winning pretty easily. And before the Comey thing made a lot of people angry and kind of ginned up more energy within her campaign. Either one of those things could have a certain amount of truth to it. And after all, let's remember, Comey did sound and all clear at the sort of last moment, but still with enough time for people to absorb that information. And she seemed to have rebounded in the polls in the last three or four days. The basic problem here, I don't think is Comey, and I don't think that it's Gary Johnson. The basic problem is that a big chunk of the Democratic base was not excited enough about Hillary Clinton to turn out and vote. Sue. Trump's going to walk into the White House uh, with the GOP Senate and a GOP House. What should we expect policy-wise with that formula? The two things I immediately think of tonight is, one, we obviously have a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and Donald Trump is going to get to make that nomination. He, in the course of his campaign, has already floated the names of as many as 20 jurists that he would consider for that nomination, all within the philosophical line of Antonin Scalia, who was the justice who passed away this year. The, The seat on the court has been held vacant. Senate Republicans have held that vacancy open with the argument that they believe that the next president should make that nomination. That will be Donald Trump. Supreme Court nominations are hugely, hugely significant. I mean, depending on who he nominates, this is someone who could be on the court for generations, if not, you know, 30, 40, 50 years if you pick someone younger. Uh, And the second thing I immediately thought of is for the past five years, the Republican Party, which still has many divisions inside of it, has been very much united on repealing President Obama's health care law, often referred to as Obamacare. There was never a realistic legislative path for that to happen because they were always dealing with split government or a Democrat in the White House. There now exists a narrow but real legislative path for Republicans to do this. And it's going to be an interesting test of their power to see if they really go through with it after promising to do it and how they would remake our health care system if they do. Yeah. OK, taking a break. We'll be right back with some final thoughts. This podcast is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to capture your passion with a beautiful website. If there's an idea or project that you're itching to show the world, you should. 
With Squarespace's simple tools and captivating templates, showcasing your hard work is the easy part. Show your support for the show by using offer code POLITICS at checkout. Set your website apart. Okay. Um, we said really quick yesterday, and we want to say again, one year ago today, we began this podcast, and it's been quite the ride. And to be clear, this podcast is not going anywhere. We're going to be doing a couple of episodes a week until the inauguration because we're going to have a lot to talk about, of course. Um, want to keep this podcast going as long as folks want to hear it. And one thing that helps us do that is your support of your local public radio station. So if you want to help us out and if you're thankful for the 150 plus episodes we've done this year, if you want to support us going forward, you can go to npr.org slash stations. Find your local station and donate. Tell them we sent you. That supports the work we do. And thank you so much for listening to us all year long. Okay, we made it through this phase at least. Um, final thoughts for election 2016? So I have spent all year looking at demographics and talking about demographics. And I, I guess to me the thing that is startling and sort of confusing about what we saw happen on election night is that People kept saying, you know, this is going to be the most diverse electorate to date and that maybe only around, you know, 70 percent of voters were going to be white. And that would be a really hard thing for for a Republican to win in an electorate that looks like that. And yet Donald Trump uh, won with an electorate that looked that way. And to me, the big question moving forward is if you are a Democrat who banks your strategy on people of color, And those folks don't always show up at the polls. And you are consistently winning lower and lower, smaller and smaller portions of a white electorate. That actually isn't going to help you win elections, you know, for the next couple of cycles, maybe in 20 years. But I think this whole election cycle, we've talked about the demographic challenges that the Republican Party has. And tonight, in some ways, it felt like The Democratic Party also has its challenges with demographics, one being that really, you know, we saw the Midwest crumble. We saw the old Rust Belt states crumble because Hillary Clinton lost white voters by quite substantial margins. I think my big takeaway from tonight is how much an entire industry missed this big thing coming. The American political polling industry, American journalism, we missed it. And I think ultimately it speaks to a need for those industries and those of us in it to look at the whole country. I feel like sometimes what we're doing is a little bit too in the beltway, a little bit too coastal, a little bit too urban. And a lot of the people that do what we do missed all of this. And I don't know what the fix is, but there needs to be one. <laughs> there we, needs to be. We, I, will, I will push back just to this degree to say we have been talking about it since yes. Donald Trump started to succeed. Yes. And that was roughly about the time of the San Bernardino massacre roughly a year ago. Before that, he was not the juggernaut in the Republican primaries. He was not the juggernaut in their debates and the primaries hadn't begun yet. He did not win the Iowa caucuses. But he caught fire shortly thereafter. And what we missed was not so much, I don't think, of the unhappiness of large swaths of the American people. We've been seeing that since the Tea Party arose in 2009 and did all kinds of things that surprised us then too. What we missed was the degree to which Mm -hmm. that was going to remain a force behind Donald Trump. We missed the fact that the evangelical portion of that pushback was going to be able to 
come to an accommodation with Donald Trump. I believe he won that particular demographic four to one, at least in some states. But I believe he won it nationwide uh, by an astonishing margin. And that surprised a lot of people who thought they knew something about evangelicals. So we missed a lot of the degree. We missed a lot of the particulars. We knew there was anger. We knew there was resentment of the, the last eight years. Let's just put it that way. Some of which may have been racial. Some of which may have been just anti-liberal or anti-diversity or anti the changes of the 21st century, we missed the degree of strength that would come to bear even to the point of carrying the national election in November. So I have covered Congress on and off since roughly 2003. And for the past, since 2011, since the, I think if you remember in 2010, sort of the ascendant Tea Party wave and Republicans took over Congress and the Congress beat for the past five or six years, I think has largely been defined by stories about gridlock and things not happening on Capitol Hill and showdowns over debt ceilings and shutdowns and everything has been confrontation politics. And my initial thought, you know, when I when I think about tonight and I think about 2017, because that's when my job gets harder, is that 2017 has the potential to be a year of an immense legislative productivity if one party controls all the le- mm-hmm. levers of government. Or it could be perhaps the most polarized, confrontational, partisan uh, time in Congress that I certainly have ever covered. And, man, I just feel like 2017, we ain't seen nothing yet. One thing that we're going to see in the upcoming days and weeks is Barack Obama and Donald Trump passing the baton to each other. And you're going to have America's first black president at the dais on Inauguration Day with the man who was one of the main proponents of the birther movement. What does this mean? What does this mean? Not just like having to see that, the strangeness of that, but what does it mean for Obama's legacy? It's really a question, I think, again, of degree, because we frequently replace a two-term president with a president of the other party. And in some sense or another, that repudiates the outgoing president's legacy. In this particular instance, because Barack Obama was the first African-American president, because he had a very distinct direction that he took the country in terms of policy, Donald Trump transitioned from being a a kind of television celebrity to being a political figure, largely on the issue of Barack Obama, his differentness. So, all right, he's questioned everything about Barack Obama. Barack Obama has questioned everything about Donald Trump. He said, we can't trust this man with the nuclear codes. He says he simply doesn't have the temperament to be president. So a lot of harsh representation between the two of them. They're also going to have an enormous ceremonial obligation to the nation to try to heal their personal wounds, at least in public, so that they can pass that baton, as you say, and hand over the responsibility for the country in an orderly manner. This is something the Democrats have talked a lot about being necessary to have happen. Mm -hmm. Now they're the ones who have to bite the bullet and accept Donald Trump as the winner and pass that baton. It's also a particular defeat for President Obama because, yes, Donald Trump was swimming with the tide, you know, historically. But I don't believe, and Ron, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe any outgoing president has campaigned as hard mm-hmm. for a potential successor as Barack Obama did for Hillary Clinton. And he very, very clearly said he was putting his own legacy on the line. And yep. he said, particularly to black audiences, that he would take it as a personal insult to his legacy if the if black voters did not turn out. So we don't know the exact numbers of their turnout, but it was clearly a repudiation of Barack Obama tonight as well. So there, I think there is some question about 
black turnout. You know, for example, in Pennsylvania, we saw that the current exit polls were showing that uh, black voters made up about 10 percent of the electorate in Pennsylvania. That is wildly different than, you know, if what we saw in 2012. 2012, they were about 13 percent of the electorate. That's actually quite a substantial difference, you know, 13 to 10 percent. And it could have been key in a state like Pennsylvania. But look, I think that the thing Sam, that you were saying is, what does this mean for Obama's legacy? The question that I have had tonight, and I don't know that I have the answer to it, or any of us will have the answer to it for a while, is sort of what does this say about us, you know, who we are as a country? There is no one American people. There are many American people. And they fall into different kinds of categories and tribes and whatever else you want to call it. And clearly in the last two presidential elections, one conglomeration or one, if you will, a coalition of those tribes was strong enough to put Barack Obama in the White House. And now here we are in 2016. And that particular coalition is no longer strong enough to put a successor Democrat, at least not one who is a Clinton, at least not one with the baggage that Hillary Clinton brought to this. Perhaps sexism plays a role in that as well, and we can explore that in the weeks and months ahead. But we know that that coalition that worked in 08 and 12 did not work in 2016, and a new coalition has taken over. All right. We'll be back with a new episode soon when the dust has settled a bit more. And we're going to do a big episode later in the week with a look back at 2016 and ahead to a Trump presidency. Until then, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. I want to take a really quick second to thank uh, the team that you don't hear. That's a big part of this podcast. Our producer, Brent Bachman, our fact-checker and producer, Barbara Sprunt, and especially our fearless editors, Mathani Maturi, Shirley Henry, and Beth Donovan. On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>